Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 32 through 34, and uh, the title of this morning's message is, The End is Near. Now, some of you might be getting really uh, excited about that title um, and all of what's going on, but we're not talking about the apocalypse or the zombie apocalypse or anything like that, but we are talking about the end of Jesus' life and that his life is coming to an end. But this is not the last chapter in Mark's gospel. This is kind of towards the middle of that. And so we, we have this, uh, again, a prophecy given about Jesus' death, and he's given it to his disciples. So this passage that we look at today uh, in our study of, the go- of Mark's gospel, it's very brief. It's only three verses of Scripture. But these few verses have a lot, I believe, to teach us, and they are extremely important about Jesus. Oftentimes, whenever we read the Bible, we can quickly gloss over verses like these and and really lose sight of what is being said here. And really, these verses, I think, give us a bigger overall picture of uh, what is happening. And so what we find are these verses that are quickly glossed over, but there's huge implications from them. And this is what I want to do this morning is kind of hover over the top of these and and see the truth that is here and get the bigger picture. Now, these verses are going to deal with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem as he heads for the cross. And we hear in them the details of his execution, and they come from Jesus' own mouth about his execution. Now, secular analysis of Jesus' execution try to reduce or explain away what really happened about 2,000 years ago. They have, there has been all kinds of countless books and articles and lectures on what happened to Jesus, what really happened to Jesus, as they would say. And you'll hear things like this, that Jesus was just offending the wrong people, and this was just a, a political assassination that was done by these Jewish leaders because they felt threatened uh, in some way because of Jesus' teachings uh, or all these crowds that were following him, and maybe they were just jealous and uh, they were scared of the, of the political ramifications of what Jesus was doing. So that's why he was killed. Some might say that Jesus was killed because he hung out with the wrong crowd of people. That he was hanging out with the, the social outcast of his day. And, and this is why they wanted to kill him. Because he was just socially unacceptable. He was, he was too inclusive for society. And, and they would say things like maybe he was just ahead of his time. And... And it just wouldn't fit for him. And so this is why he was killed. Many would teach that it was just an unfortunate and unplanned execution. Teaching that what happens with Jesus was really just a spontaneous event in history. It should have never really happened, but it was just unfortunate. It was a really bad circumstance that took place. And nobody really saw it coming. Now, all of these are usually spouted by people who have a very low view of the scriptures and I would say also a very low view of Jesus Christ. Because what we see from the scriptures today are in complete contradiction to these kinds of thoughts. We will see three truths about Jesus and his execution from these passages. And these three truths are what what I think are kind of the bigger picture for this text. And so these three points are this. One, no one forced him to the cross. No one was pushing Jesus to the cross. Number two, he purposely pursued the prophecies. 
and we'll see several prophecies this morning which Jesus fulfills. And third, he is God in the flesh. So in order to see these three points, let's look at the text in front of us. Look, look at verse 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happening to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, let's not lose sight of the previous sections that we've looked at in Mark chapter 10. Over the past two weeks, we have looked at verses 13 through 31, and in those verses, we heard Jesus teaching that it is only those who come to him like children that are going to be the ones that get into the kingdom of God. It is only those who have been humbled under the law of God who will see their sin in light of God's holiness, who will repent of their sins and will trust in the only one who can save them, and that is namely Jesus Christ. Now, we saw from the story of the rich young ruler in verses 17 through 31 that even though it might appear that there's humility, even though it might appear outwardly, externally, that someone is being humble or they are urgently seeking to enter the kingdom of God, that internally this may not be true. Internally, with with this young man, we see that he's not humble, we see that there's actually a rejection of following Jesus because he's holding on to his idols. He's holding on to his wealth. He's holding on to his lifestyle. He's holding on to other things. and He's not willing to embrace Jesus. And maybe this is the case for you. Maybe you have been holding on to things like this young man. Maybe it has not just been, maybe it's your wealth or maybe it's not. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your car. Maybe it's your your kids, maybe it's your, your friends, your status, your popularity. Maybe these are things in which you've been holding on to, and because you've been hanging on to these things, you have not actually followed Jesus Christ. You have not humbled yourself before God. You have not rejected the idols in your life, and because of that, you are outside the kingdom. Now, this young man, he was holding on to his wealth, it was his God, and maybe this is the case for you, or you are hanging on to these things that are your gods, and you need to surrender those for you as well. You're unwilling to truly follow Jesus as he's called you to do, as he called this man to do, and because you're unwilling to follow Jesus, you are unable to enter the kingdom of God. So this is our backdrop that we have here in Mark's gospel. This is, this is the context in which we have these verses, 32 through 34. Now, we are given some answers in this section of how does someone get into the kingdom? Well, again, it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's only through him. It's only those that trust in his sacrifice that make their way in, that have that atonement applied to them. Now, again... Some would say that the execution of Jesus, it was a a spontaneous thing, an unplanned event. It was just a circumstance that happened in history. 
But again, this is inconsistent with what we see from verse 32. This is inconsistent with really what we see from all four of the Gospels and what we see from all of the New Testament. So let me take you back to verse 32 to, to make my point here that no one forced Jesus to the cross. No one forced him to go there. This is not an accident by any means. Look at verse 32. It says that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Going up to Jerusalem. Now, we see this very often in the Bible when it says this, this phrase, go up to, going up to Jerusalem. This is not meaning that they're headed north to Jerusalem. Actually, where they would be, uh, they would be to the north of Jerusalem, so they'd be going south. So in the way that they talk, and the Bible speaks of going up to Jerusalem, is a little different than how we talk and how we navigate with, with talking to somebody about where, where you're going. So if today you said, well, I'm going up to Topeka, that would make sense in our minds. But if you said, I'm going up to Tulsa, unless you're maybe from a different area, you would think, well, that's kind of strange. We don't really talk in navigating terms like that. So what's being said here? Well, it's in relation to Jerusalem being 2,500 feet above sea level. And if you would travel to Jerusalem, you had to go up. From whatever direction you came, you had to go up to Jerusalem. It's about 3,500 feet from the Dead Sea, which is thought to be where Jesus is actually kind of coming from that area. So it's, it's quite a climb. And again, you're, they're walking this distance, so they're going up to Jerusalem. Now, what we see in Mark's gospel with Jerusalem... We see that it's a symbol of oppression to Jesus. Jerusalem is constantly portrayed in this way. We see this back in chapter 3, verse 22. We see this in chapter 7, verse 1. And now we see it here in verses 32 through 34. Now it says there also in verse 32 that Jesus was walking ahead of them. Again, something that we just kind of gloss over like, oh, well, okay, that's nice. Maybe Jesus is just faster than them, right? Maybe he's just in better shape than them. That's not what's being said here. Rabbis at this time, they would usually walk ahead of their disciples, but again, that's not what Mark is really getting at. Mark is not indicating that Jesus was just the rabbi, the teacher, the leader, and they're just following. That's not what we have because of the rest of verse 32. He was not being dragged to Jerusalem. He's not being pushed by the crowd to Jerusalem. That's not what's happening. Nobody's tricking him into going to Jerusalem. And this is what Mark is pointing out. He's ahead of them. He's blazing the trail to Jerusalem for them. Jesus was resolute in his movement toward Jerusalem. He, he was not going because, well, the Passover was there, and, and that's why he had to go because of the Passover and to celebrate it. Again, that is, that is not why, and we, we learn that here. So look at the next line that's there in verse 32. It says, And they were amazed... And those who followed were afraid. So if it was just simply that Jesus is the rabbi, he's leading the way, then why would Mark insert this idea? Now most likely what we we have here from this is that the twelve, they were the ones being referred to. There might have been two separate groups that were following Jesus, the twelve and then probably other disciples, other followers of Jesus. And how this verse is constructed, you could probably get to that point. But I think what we see here is that the disciples are the ones that were amazed and afraid. They were the ones. The ones that were closest to Jesus, they would have been the ones that were afraid, that were amazed. And the word afraid here, it carries with it a baffling kind of fear. And so how we have it translated in our English Bibles is because of this fact. They're baffled with fear. Why were they amazed? Why were they afraid? Jesus 
had told them directly what was going to happen before this. And what they're watching is Jesus walking toward his death. They're amazed at his intent. They're they're amazed that he's going toward this place of oppression, this place of death, of execution. They have heard the fate of Jesus from Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that uh, they're going to go to Bethany, which is next to Jerusalem. If you know this in John chapter 11, in the story of Lazarus. Jesus is going to go to Bethany because Lazarus has died and he tells his disciples, we're going to go there, which is right there by Jerusalem. And then hear what what Thomas has to say in John chapter 11, verse 16. It says, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. His disciples were not ignorant of what was going to happen. Whenever his disciples heard that, hey, we're going to go to Bethany, which meant we're going to go to Jerusalem too. Thomas, his first reaction was, well, I guess we're all going to die. This is, this is what was explained to them by Jesus. Jesus had explained several times that if we go to Jerusalem, there's imminent danger and it's going to be death. And this is why they're afraid. This is why they're amazed. This is why he's walking ahead of them. This is why they're kind of probably, they're more than likely, talking amongst each other like, can you believe this is happening? Can you believe we're all going to die? And, and, you know, Thomas and how he is. You know, in, in his approach to what's going to happen. But Jesus, through all of this, he was not detoured from going there. He was not distracted in going there. What we see from verse 32, he was purposely taking each step with the intent of going to die. What we have in Mark's gospel are three times which Jesus has taught that he is going to die. And and I think this is interesting that we have these back to back to back in chapter 8, verse 31, and then in chapter 9, 30 through 32, and then here in chapter 10, 32 through 34. And what's taking place too with Mark's writing is a revelation, a progressive revelation happening in more and more detail of what is going to happen to Jesus during this time. So if Jesus knew what was going to happen to him, then we can, I think, easily eliminate this claim that this was some sort of terrible misunderstanding and just a lot of confusion that happened of why Jesus died. Jesus was not forced to go to Jerusalem. He was not forced to go to the cross. This was not some some strange circumstance that happened where he just happened to get killed, unfortunately. No, they were afraid. They were amazed because this was his purpose. Now, we know from other scriptures that this was always the purpose. This is always God's plan. Let me walk you through some of these this morning. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3:15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise, he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy that we have of the seed of the woman coming to crush the head of the serpent. This is long before David, long before Abraham. This was the plan. But was this plan B? That's the real question. Was this plan B with God? I would say not according to the New Testament authors or to the disciples. Let me give you some examples of this. Peter writes, or Peter preaches actually, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. He's preaching on the day of Pentecost after, again, the resurrection, after the the Spirit and the Holy Spirit has come to them. And he's preaching to the men of Jerusalem, to all these multitude of people. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Whose plan was this? It was God's plan. God's plan in what what was a definite plan, a foreknown plan. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul goes on in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 9 through 12. He says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery of the hidden, uh, hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom... We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. According to Paul, this plan was not plan B, but was always the plan. Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. He says, but with this precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for uh, the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So what we see from Paul, from Peter, is that this plan of God was foreknown. It was before the foundations of the world, and that all of what was going to happen was ordained by God. John writes in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, he says, All who dwell on the earth will worship it, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, if we walk backwards through that verse, we we learn something about this plan of God. We, We see that the Lamb was slain when? Before the foundations of the world. What we see also is that we, we who would come to him, our names were written there before this. This plan of God, according to the New Testament authors, is not something that they looked back through history and went, oh, well, I think it was just whenever human history started, that whenever the fall happened, that this was the plan. That, that is not the impression that I get from Scripture. I think what we see is that they looked at not just human history, but e- the eternal purpose of God and said it was Jesus. The eternal purpose of God was Jesus Christ, Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus, born of a virgin. This was the plan. God's plan A, I would say, was not plan A. It was the plan. There was no other plan. This was not something that God saw happen in time and went, hmm, how am I going to fix this? If God is truly a perfect God, how, how could he respond that way? He doesn't. I believe that his plan has never been thwarted. It has never been overtaken. It has never been something that has been stopped or, or halted in some way, that the devil got his little claws in there and messed things up. No, I believe that what is happening and has happened has always been the action plan and progression of God. 
It has always been what he has wanted. It has always been what he is moving toward. It has been Jesus Christ. I think, I think we see this from the Bible. What is, again, truly amazing is that no one forced Jesus to go to the cross. No one forced him in this way. This was always the plan. This is always what Jesus was born to do. And Jesus says himself in John chapter 10, as we, we read from chapter 10 earlier, picking up verse 17 through 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Why does Jesus go to the cross? Because the Father instructed him, led him, planned for him to go to the cross. Jesus, as he says here, he has the authority to lay it down because the Father has given him this authority, but he also has the authority to take it up again, which is what we'll see at the end of verse 34. This is the eternal decree of God the Father, that the God the Son would pay the ransom price for the lost souls of men. There had to be a sacrifice for sin. We see this from the very beginning of Genesis 3. In God's plan, there was no conspiracy by the Romans or by the Jews. It, even though there was conspiracy happening, this was not because of their doing. This is because of God's plan. This is not some coincidental circumstance that just happened to happen. No. Jesus, Jesus willingly gives his life so that people like us, might be saved. He willingly gives his life to redeem us through his sacrifice. Now, if you look at, thir- at verse 32 again, there's a, Mark has given us some commentary, and then he leads into the teaching of Jesus. And he gives this transitional phrase here. He says, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Taking the 12 again, this was the theme. This was the theme whenever he left Galilee, that he was taking the 12 kind of aside, teaching them personally, privately. And Jesus does this again. And notice where this happens on the road. Jesus is blazing the trail to Jerusalem, and it seems to be that Jesus just kind of pulls off to the side of the road, kind of rest stop or something, right? And calls his disciples in close, and he teaches them a third time that we know from Mark. What is going to happen? They, they're already fearful. They're already afraid of what's going to happen. And it seems to be Jesus keep piling on the fear, right? Like, hey, I'm the, all these terrible things are going to happen to me. It doesn't really seem to be maybe a loving thing to do. But I, I think in the end of verse 34, we see that it is extremely hopeful. This kind of leads me to my second point about what we see here from Jesus. We see that he purposely pursued the prophecies. He personally pursued the prophecies. Now, how did Jesus know the prophecies? Well, he was very intimately informed of the Old Testament. He, he knew what was in it. He knew the prophecies that were there. And second of all, he was God in the flesh. So we are told that Jesus was, from a very early age, extremely knowledgeable in the Word of God. So knowledgeable that he was kind of forgotten by his parents at one point, and he was in the temple teaching in the... The rulers at the time were just kind of scratching their head, like, how does he know this? How does he understand these things? We also see through Jesus' teaching that he's consistently saying things like this. Have you not read? Do you not know? 
Have you not heard? We hear this again and again, and already through Mark's gospel, we've seen his skill with the scriptures in dealing with the Pharisees and with the scribes as they try to box him into a corner, and he kind of does this just this like switcheroo thing, and he puts them into the corner with just a simple question. And how does he do this? Because he knows the scriptures so well. He knows what's in the text. He, he knows the prophecies. He knows what they contain, but also how to explain them. We even see this after the resurrection of Jesus, as he's walking with his two of the disciples, and, and he's explaining all the Old Testament to them, and, and they finally have this revealing that happens that, oh, this is the Christ, this is our Savior, this is our Lord. Let me take you to John chapter 1. I think there's something interesting that happens in John's, uh, John's progression in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son of God, uh, son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then if you go farther to verse 29, we see John the Baptist, the prophet of the day, given a prophecy of Jesus. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John is showing us that the Word became flesh, and then the prophet of the day looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now notice, if you would notice in chapter 1, Jesus does not reject the prophecy that was given to him. What does he do? He embraces it. Now any, any logical, reasonable Jew at this time would not accept that kind of praise, would not accept that kind of, of elevation to them because it would be a death sentence if you're not God. Jesus does not argue with John. He does not say, well, I think your interpretation is a little wrong of that Old Testament scripture that you're referring to. He, he doesn't say that. He embraces what John is calling him the lamb who takes away the sin of the world so every step that we see of Jesus moving toward the cross, moving toward Jerusalem, is a step in fulfillment of the prophecies. He is purposely pursuing these. Let me give you just some examples of these prophecies, and we won't read all of Isaiah 53, but Isaiah 53 is probably one of the most profound and eye-opening prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, it, it explains the sufferings of the servant king, and it's probably titled in your Bible, The Suffering Servant. It's filled with very explicit detail of what is going to happen to this suffering servant. And that God is going to send this one. He's going to send this one that is going to, again, crush the head of the serpent. Also in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is another place in where we find extremely detailed uh, information about what is going to happen to the Messiah. And it's so detailed, in fact, it, again, I would encourage you to read it this week, you would see that it almost reads like an eyewitness account of what happens to Jesus. Let me just give you a few verses here, verse 6 and 7. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by, all, by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. This was happening at Jesus' execution. Verses 17 and 18, I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, it's like an eyewitness account. 
these passages, they really gain an abundance of clarity whenever we see the execution of Jesus in light of what was said earlier. Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7 says this, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Every step that Jesus is taking toward Jerusalem is fulfilling Isaiah 50. He's fulfilling what verse 7 says. He set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He was not going to be detoured. He wasn't going to allow his, the, the, the fear of his disciples to stop him from taking the next step. He does take a, a sidebar with his disciples and says, guys, this is what's going to happen. You know this is going to happen, and this is what my destiny is. He purposely pursued what was promised, what was promised through the Scripture about the Messiah. There's not one of these where he's yeah, a little off on that. doesn't quite fulfill that. Why does he pursue the fulfillment of these ancient texts? Why does he pursue fulfilling what Psalms has to say, what Isaiah has to say, what Genesis 3 has to say? Because of who he is. Who is he? Well, he's God in the flesh. As read earlier from John chapter 1, we see that Jesus is God, and he is God in the flesh. And he, he comes by way of Jesus. We witness throughout the Gospels Jesus revealing his divine nature and power. We've seen that through Mark's Gospel already. We've seen that Jesus keeps revealing more and more of his, his divine nature and power. And in verses 33 and 34 here, Jesus gives, again, precise details of what's going to happen. Precise detail. And only God, only God knows the future. Only God can execute these kinds of details throughout history. And he does it perfectly. 100% accuracy, reliability. Have you ever considered this? Have you ever thought about in the prophecies that are there with Jesus and the detail that they are, the likelihood of them happening? There's been mathematicians that have done, the, done the, the work on this, and it comes out to be really a statistical impossibility. It's impossible. But we have in front of us the recording of the man that does the impossible. In verse 33, Jesus says this about himself. He says, we see, uh, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to um, the chief priests and the scribes. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered over to. Referring to himself, the Son of Man, this is a, a messianic term that is used over 80 times in the New Testament. It actually derives from Daniel chapter 7 in reference to the Messiah, in reference to this, this one that is to come, this, um, this Jesus. And when it says this, of delivered over to, this means, this has the meaning of being betrayed. He's going to be delivered over to, betrayed. So in other words, we could say that the Messiah is going to be betrayed. That's what he's told his disciples. And we know that Jesus was betrayed, don't we? We know that he was betrayed by not only Judas, but really by all of his disciples. I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus, being God in the flesh, he, he knows all. He knows what's going to happen. He, he knows in 
very intimate detail what's going to take place. And he pulls his disciples in close to him on this road. And he begins to, to tell them that he's going to go and die, but also that he's going to be betrayed. Jesus is referring to who when he talks about this betrayal? Them. They don't know that. They don't get that, but he does. He talks about these guys that are the ones that are so seemingly brave in following him, even though quite often they're, they're scaredy cats. Whether they're in a boat or they're in a crowd or wherever, they, they seem to always fail with fear. They've been so seemingly faithful to him. And now what's going to happen? Jesus is telling them, you're going to abandon me. But what does Jesus do? He, he loves them. He pulls them aside he teaches them, he keeps serving them, and he keeps serving and caring for them until when? The last breath that he gives. Now, if you're here today, and you're struggling with how much does Jesus love me, please see what's happening here. See the bigger picture. Let's not gloss over what, what's, what's being said here, what's being taught. God in the flesh came knowing, knowing that he would be rejected it was prophesied that he'd be rejected. He knew that he would be despised by those that were closest to him. But what does he do? He continues to love them. Please don't think for a minute that your sins are too great for Jesus to overcome. That there's no way in which he could forgive you for what you have done. And what we are hearing here, and we'll be witnessing through the rest of Mark's gospel account, is that these men... All of them, all of them will commit an act of treason against the king of kings. Which really, if we get right down to it, we have all committed acts of treason against the king. Again, if we look at ourselves in light of the Ten Commandments, we find that we fail, and we fail miserably against those things. And all of those things are acts of treason against the kingdom of God and against the king of kings. But what we see Jesus do with these men that will commit acts of treason against him, what does he do for them? He dies for them. He pays their price, the price of treason. Why does he do this? So that the wrath of God would no longer rest upon them, but they'd be freed, that the prophecies would be fulfilled. And this is true for you, Christian. Christian, this is true for you. You've been set free from the wrath of God. But it can also be true for you, unbeliever. If you would reject your sin, you would trust in the work of Jesus Christ. If you do what we saw earlier from verse 13 through verse 31, if you would come to him like a child, if you would reject all the things which you've been holding on to, if you would trust in him and not in yourself, you would trust in him and not in your work, you would trust in what he has accomplished. If you would come to him, in humility, if you would lay aside these things that are getting in the way of your total surrender to him, he will save your soul. The author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus had his eyes set on the cross. But he also had his eyes on the joy that would be produced from it. Now again, it's hard for us to comprehend and really understand. And as Gary had us pray through this idea of joy this morning, listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, look, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
as Hebrews 12.2 ends, it says that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is that? Why is he seated? Why is that important? Because the high priest, the king, Jesus, he has accomplished what he set out to do. Why? Why did he look at the joy that was before him? He knew the cross was coming, but he, he understood the joy that would happen because of the cross. He knew that there would be people rescued from hell because of what he would do. And so whenever he sits down at the right hand of God, it is complete. Whenever he said, it is finished, he meant it. It is over. There's no working in which you can do to earn this. And this is what he points out to the rich young ruler. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot earn this on your own. There's those that would like to say, well, you need Jesus and something. They're liars. The Bible does not say that. It says Christ alone. This is what it teaches it is only through him in which you can be saved. It is only the king that has set down. It is only the high priest that has set down. The one that even gave his life. He is the lamb of God. You would never be a worthy lamb. You have too many spots. You have too many blemishes. You're too defiled. It is only Christ. Notice in verse 34, though, I want you to see this. This is really important. Jesus, again, seems to be just pouring on the fear, but look at verse 34, how it ends, and after three days he will rise. Again, we see again and again with the disciples, they cannot comprehend the resurrection of Jesus. They don't get it, but it's, it's constantly there in front of them. And they even see it with Lazarus. Jesus just calls him right out of the grave. But they cannot comprehend this joy that's going to happen three days later. Our hope is in a Savior that was not coerced. He was not forced in going to the cross. Our Savior, He was fulfilling all of what had been promised for Him to do, for Him to walk toward, for Him to die for, and fulfilling, defeating the grave. Our Savior, our Savior has sat down Because the work of atonement has been completed. It is secured in him, in trusting him and what he's done. The word became flesh. Jesus the Christ has paid for your sin. Jesus the Christ, your Savior, he has sat down. The work is finished. Trust him. As we conclude today and as we have been doing and go into a time of reflection, and the purpose of that is for you to just ponder and think and pray and maybe take notes or or pray with somebody else about what you've heard. I don't have questions for you today. I, I just have three kind of things to think about. The first thing being gratitude for the cross. Gratitude for the cross. Do, do you have gratitude for what Jesus has done? And maybe you have in the past, but today, let us be reminded again of the goodness of what has taken place, the joy that was found in the cross of your sin being paid for because of Jesus. Also, I think what we can, we can derive from this today is a confidence in our Savior. As there's so much doubt poured out on Christianity and poured out upon Jesus, I think we can look at just three verses and go, look, look at who he is, look what he did, and we should have confidence as believers. And then the last thing, I think We should be constantly praying for those that have not trusted in him. Use this time, just these minute or two, to think about these three things. 
And then I will close this in prayer.